This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Today on Something You Should Know, some simple ways to be healthier that only take a minute. Then, a scientific look at the universe, and what are the chances there are other planets that could support intelligent life? We estimate that in our Milky Way galaxy, the number of Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars with just the right orbits, in other words, potential homes for life, is somewhere around 5 billion. Also, why does the snooze on your alarm clock give you 9 more minutes of sleep, but not 10? and the importance of a good apology. Across the millennia, religious traditions around the world embody different ways for people to face and atone for what they do wrong. It's like a basic human universal need to address these things. And when you don't, you feel bad. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story because hiring is hard that's why if you're hiring you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast and fast is good but quality also matters And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You hear a lot of advice today about what you should do to be healthy. And frankly, a lot of it sounds like a lot of work. So here are some ways to be healthy that don't require a lot of work. In fact, they only take a minute. First of all, dry brush your teeth. 
Before squeezing toothpaste onto the brush, take 30 seconds to brush your teeth with a dry toothbrush. Doing so cuts tartar by 60% and reduces the risk of bleeding gums by half. Energize for less. Coffee isn't the only drink that'll boost your energy late in the day. Club soda with lime will do wonders. The carbonation and the aroma of the lime will energize you. Slice thin, eat less. Slicing food thinly will make your portions seem bigger and more satisfying. In a study at Japan's National Food Research Institute, participants who compared equal amounts of sliced and whole vegetables rated the sliced piles up to 27% larger. When you believe you're eating a larger portion of food, you trick yourself into feeling more satisfied with fewer calories. Get to sleep faster. Instead of counting sheep to fall asleep, just wear socks. Swiss researchers found that people fell asleep quickest when their hands and feet were warmest. Show some gratitude. Studies have shown that 90% of people say expressing gratitude made them happier people, and more than 75% said it reduced stress and depression and gave them more energy. And try some fresh flowers in the morning. Looking at a vase of fresh daisies, tulips, roses, or other cut flowers while eating breakfast can improve your mood. Research from Harvard shows that even people who say they're not morning people report feeling happier and more energetic after looking at fresh-cut flowers first thing in the morning. And that is something you should know. Two of my favorite topics are time and space. I mean, just looking up at the night sky and contemplating the vastness of space... And and trying to get a handle on what time actually is. Is time travel possible? We can travel in space, but we can't travel in time. Except we can go into the future. Because that's what we're doing all the time. There are fascinating questions about time and space. And here to discuss them is Paul Sutter. Paul is an astrophysicist at Stony Brook University. He hosts the Ask a Spaceman podcast. And he's author of the book... How to Die in Space. Hey, Paul, so let's just dive in here. What is time? What is time? I don't know, and nobody knows, and that's kind of the problem with time. And it's funny that you mentioned that you're fascinated by time. Just about everybody is fascinated by time, and physicists are fascinated by time, and physicists have been trying to understand the nature of time for a a very long time. And we do know some things about time, even though we haven't cracked the whole thing. We we know a couple of things. We've learned one or two things. One of the things we've learned is through Einstein's special theory of relativity, that space and time are intimately connected. In fact, you can't think of movement through space or measurement in space aside or separate from movement in time or separations in time. You have to think of them as a unified framework, something we call space-time. This is the four-dimensional fabric of our entire universe. So we know there's a connection there, uh, but we also know that time is still a little bit special and different from our three spatial dimensions. In space, you can move in any direction you want. You can go left or right. You can go up or down. You can go forward or backward. It doesn't matter. 
but time, you can only go into the future. We cannot, as far as we can tell, travel into our own past. It seems, from everything we can observe, that time is unidirectional. It can only go into the future. And why is that different? Why is time so special? Why does time have that property? Beats me, but it's driving us nuts. Well, and you can only go into the future at one pace. You can't speed up or go slow. You can only go at the same pace as everybody else. Actually, you can change the rate of progression into your own future. You are allowed to skip forward into the future. And we get this again from Einstein's special theory of relativity, which tells us that space and time are connected. And through relativity, we learn that the faster you go in space, the slower you move in time. So if you start moving faster and faster and faster, if you start running or you get in a rocket ship or you hitch a ride on a nearby comet, the closer you get to the speed of light, the faster you're moving in time, you will feel totally normal. The flow of time in on your wristwatch, in your heartbeat, uh, the rhythms of your day, all that is exactly the same. But from the outside universe looking in, it looks like you're moving in slow motion. And it's this difference that makes relativity the theory of relativity. Measurements of space and time are relative to the observer. So it is totally possible, 100% allowed by physics and something we have measured and experimentally verified that if you were to go fast, say you were to go up to 99% of the speed of light and you were to cruise around like that for 20 years or so, you would come back to Earth and it could be a thousand years into the future. And that is totally legit. It's clear, though, that you can't travel back in time because, you know, as the saying goes, if, if time travel was possible, where are all the people from the future? That if you could travel back in time, people from the future would be traveling back here to tell us how to do it, and uh, we, we don't see those people. Right, right. So you can skip forward into the future. You can affect the rate of the flow of passage of time into the future, but you can't stop the flow of time, and you can't turn around the flow of time. Time travel into the future is A-okay, happens all the time. Time travel into the past appears to be forbidden. And one of the examples is, uh, yeah, if time travel into the past is allowed, where are all the future people coming to visit? That doesn't seem to be happening. There are also other issues with time travel into the past, like the whole grandfather paradox thing. Like if you go back in time and shoot your grandfather before he has your father, then you aren't alive. You are never born. So how did you become alive in order to go back in time to shoot your grandfather? You set up a paradox, but that paradox only exists if time travel into the past is allowed. But wait, all that was explained in Back to the Future, that when you go back in time and change the future from that point in time, you create an alternate universe. And Doc Brown, <laughs> Doc Brown explained that. 
Yeah, Doc Brown is not exactly a respected member of the <laughs> physics or scientific communities, <laughs> and in his words, should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what he's a doctor of exactly. But, um, <laughs> they don't specify. They don't specify. He's just a doctor. And I remember hearing someone say, and, I, and, and it always stuck with me, that science has no special designation or explanation or definition for now. Now is not anything special. What we call now is what in relativity we call an event. An event is a specific point in both space and time. So if I were to meet you for coffee tomorrow at 4 p.m. at this coffee shop, there would be an event attached to the moment of our meeting and the location of our meeting. It is this moment in time and it is this location in space. It is our coordinate in space time. And that is the now in physics. And now it's gone. And now it's gone. Time is always moving forwards and it doesn't stop. Uh, we don't really understand why it moves forward but not backwards we have concocted over the years various attempts at time machines or various contraptions various ideas various theories of how to travel back in time but every time we do every time we concoct some uh, device or physical scenario that would permit travel into the past, there is some rule or some law of physics or some understanding of the way things works that prevents it. But it's a different thing every time that prevents that uh, the ability to travel back in time. And so what we don't have, what we're lacking in physics, what really bugs us is an overarching fundamental explanation for why Time always flows forward. There's no equation we can point to. There's nothing we can print on a T-shirt. There's nothing we can write articles about that says, oh, this is the reason. This is the fundamental physics reason why physics, why time cannot flow backwards. It just doesn't, but we're not exactly sure why. We're talking about space and time and the universe, and we're talking about that with Paul Sutter. He's an astrophysicist at Stony Brook University. He hosts the Ask a Space Band podcast, and he's author of the book, How to Die in Space. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, when you look at space travel, and particularly if you look at fictional space travel, Star Trek, Star Wars, 
there's a lot of intergalactic travel. There's a lot of interplanetary travel. And yet, when you look at the, the science, I mean, the, the universe is so big, galaxies are so big, that even at the speed of light, it would seem hard to be able to do a whole lot of traveling and go a whole lot of places in outer space just because it is so big and you can only go so fast. Yeah, space travel that you see in the movies is tough to replicate in the real world. Uh, Interplanetary travel, I mean, we do that on the regular anyway, not with people, but with robots, which is the next best thing. So traveling within our solar system is just fine, but our missions to the outer planets are take years like new horizons that's swung by pluto back in 2016 that mission took nine and a half years to reach pluto and that was just one member in our solar system that same spacecraft is currently cruising at about thirty-six thousand miles per hour which is kind of fast but if and it's not even pointed in it in the direction of any particular star if it were pointed to our next nearest neighbor proxima centauri uh, Proxima Centauri sits about four light years away. New Horizons traveling at 36,000 miles per hour would take about 40,000 years <laughs> to reach Proxima Centauri. And that is one of our fastest spacecraft ever. If you really want interstellar travel, you have to get up to significant fractions of the speed of light. And getting a big spaceship or rocket or pr- space probe or anything up to that kind of speed is just so far beyond our technical abilities. It's not impossible, but it's not happening in our lifetimes. Just as you cannot travel back in time, is it also true that you cannot, that that there's no way, from what we know, that you can travel faster than the speed of light? Yep, that's not a thing. And I know every time I say, no, we can't travel faster than the speed of light. They say, well, we used to think you couldn't travel faster than the speed of sound. And we're wrong about that. The speed of sound thing, some people were worried about us traveling faster than the speed of sound. Not that it was impossible, but that we didn't have the materials, the engineering to withstand the turbulence and forces that you would encounter when traveling faster than the speed of sound. The speed of light is different. This is not an engineering issue. This is not a material science issue. This is not a cleverness or ingenuity issue. This is a rule that is baked into the very fabric of the universe. That whole space-time thing, that whole connection between space and time is enabled through the finiteness of the speed of light and the inability of objects to go faster than it. We have measured this, we have tested this countless times over the past hundred years since we first cooked up this whole relativity business. And if you want a universe where travel faster than the speed of light as possible, we would have to rewrite almost everything we know about fundamental physics, which is not impossible. It's happened before, but you've got a long, long way to go. You've got a lot of work to do to show how it's possible in our universe because everything we've seen for 100 years has pointed to the fact that we can't go faster than the speed of light. So aliens... 
what are the chances that they're out there, and what are the chances that we'll ever have cocktails with them? Right. Uh, aliens are fun. So uh, here we are on the Earth. The Earth is has uh, liquid water oceans, a nice thick atmosphere, a strong magnetic field. It's just the right distance from our star. But we got plenty of life going on here on the Earth. It's a big universe. Our own Milky Way galaxy is home to 300 billion stars, and there are about 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So if life happened here with this set of conditions, it's likely that this set of conditions is replicated other places in the universe. So we estimate we have very rough estimates. So take this number with a huge grain of salt. Uh, but we estimate that in our Milky Way galaxy, the number of Earth-like planets around sun-like stars with just the right orbits, in other words, potential homes for life that we would recognize, is somewhere around 5 billion there might be 5 billion copies of the Earth out there in our own galaxy, let alone the 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. That said, life is incredibly rare. We have absolutely no evidence for life outside of the Earth. We have absolutely no signals that we've received. We see no signs of intelligence or life in any of our surveys, and we've done a lot of surveys on this. If life were common, we would have picked it up by now, but we simply haven't. So we know that life is rare, but we also know that it's a big universe. My best guess is my intuition is telling me that life is relatively common, that our galaxy is probably home to other intelligent species, that we're probably not alone, but the vastness of interstellar space prevents us from ever visiting or ever contacting or probably even ever talking to each other. The universe is gigantic. The spaces between stars, the lengths of galaxies are so incredibly vast. They are literally beyond human comprehension. And we just can't even wrap our minds around the kinds of distances we're talking about. So even though I think we are probably not alone in the universe, we are effectively alone in the universe. What are the things that you studied uh, in all the years that you've studied it, uh, one or two things that just jump out at you as being just so darn cool. <laughs> one of the coolest things I've studied over the past few years is something called cosmic voids. These are large empty regions in the cosmos. This is when you look at the cosmos, look at the universe at the very largest scales. Uh, the galaxies in our universe aren't scattered around randomly. They're arranged in this beautiful and complex uh, cobweb shape, a uh, cobweb pattern, and it's called the cosmic web. And like any cobweb, there's the lines, and but then there's also the gaps. There's the big empty regions. And I focused a lot on absolutely nothing. I wrote papers, many papers on uh, the properties of absolutely nothing, uh, using them to try to understand the growth and evolution and history of our universe. But just when I sit back and think about the scales involved, like when we do a galaxy survey and we map out the cosmic voids and we start studying them and measuring them and their properties, realizing that I am studying a structure 
that is 80 million light years wide, and it is absolutely devoid of matter. That is just a mind-boggling fact to me and how those things grew up and evolved and what they can tell us about the universe uh, really, really gets my motor going. And so talk about this whole concept of how the universe is expanding, because if it's expanding, what's it expanding into, you know, those kind of big, <laughs> those big universe questions. Our universe is getting bigger every single day. Uh, we live in an expanding universe. Uh we live in an expanding universe. Our universe has no edge. It has no center. It is not expanding from anything and it is not expanding into anything. Um, it simply is. Our universe exists because if our universe was expanding into something, then that something would be a thing and that would be counted as a part of the universe because the de universe is, by definition, all the things. So you can't have all the things and then plus some other stuff that we didn't include. The universe is not expanding into anything. It has no boundary. It has no edge. It has no center. The distances between galaxies grows with time. That's what we mean when we say we live in an expanding universe. The average distance between all galaxies grows with time. If that's hard to conceptualize, if that's hard to wrap your mind around, like how can something be getting bigger without a expanding into anything well this is one of the wonderful parts of mathematics and why we use mathematics and physics is because the mathematics that describes an expanding universe are perfectly clear perfectly coherent perfectly able to describe the history and present state of the universe and compare with observations so we know we're on the right track and mathematics is a tool that lets us do things, lets us grapple with concepts and understand concepts uh, that we couldn't just imagine on our own. So with the tool, with the power of mathematics, we can learn that we live in an expanding universe that is not expanding into anything. Well, I always enjoy these kinds of conversations with people <laughs> who know what they're talking about because it, it makes you think think differently. It makes you uh, try to grasp concepts that are pretty difficult to grasp, but it's all so fascinating. Paul Sutter has been my guest. Paul is an astrophysicist at Stony Brook University. His podcast is called Ask a Spaceman, and he is also author of the book, How to Die in Space. And there's a link to his podcast and to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thank you so much. It's hard to get too far in life without having to make an apology to someone. Things happen. We make mistakes. We do dumb things. People get hurt. And so we need to apologize. Apologies are important. So what makes a good apology? What is the goal of an apology? What if, what if the person you need to or want to apologize to doesn't want to hear from you? These are questions that Molly Howes has looked into. She is a Harvard-trained clinical psychologist and author of the book, A Good Apology, for Steps to Make Things Right. Hi, Molly. Hi, Mike. I'm glad to be here. So it might come as a surprise to some people that we're even talking about this, because on the surface, anyway, apologies are so self-evident. I mean, some, you do something wrong, you say you're sorry, and life goes on. Well, for little things, that might work fine. 
But in my experience, people actually don't apologize many times when they should, even when they think they should. The apologies that we witness in the public arena are often grossly inadequate. Everybody can tell that they're not working. And mostly, I think that's because we don't know how. So what's a good apology look like? You, I know you have four steps to a good apology, so w- 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 quickly, what are they? Okay, the first step is to learn and understand what happened to the other person. What's the impact on them? What is the hurt feeling that they have? And what caused it? Nothing about you during this step matters. doesn't matter how nice a person you are, what your intentions were. It only matters about the impact on the other person. So you got to learn that first. Then the second step is to make a statement of regret and responsibility. It's, it's owning it. It's acknowledging the behavior, even if you didn't mean it, and that it had an effect on the other person that hurt them. That's what we usually think of as an apology. In my view, you need all four steps, but that's what we usually think of as an apology. The third step is making restitution, making up for the hurt or the harm, whatever it is you cost someone else. In the law, that's usually financial, making someone whole, returning them to their previous financial situation. In relationships, it's more likely to be a do-over or a symbolic um, restitution. The fourth step is to make sure that the hurt won't be repeated. It's to set up conditions that are different from the ones that produced the original hurt. What if you do something that hurt somebody's feelings or something happens where they feel bad and think you should apologize, but you don't necessarily think what you did was wrong. You were, I don't know, just being honest or you were just, you know, where an apology might seem appropriate from the victim, but you don't think you owe them one. I, I would argue that you can regret the fact that you hurt someone whether or not you intended it. It's not really a question of blame. It's a question of caring. I'm sure we've all, we all know people who maybe are a little too sensitive and get hurt sure. way too much. And, you know, it's a, it'd be a big waste of time to keep apologizing for every little thing. It could be. I mean, sometimes people keep needing an apology because they didn't get a good one yet. It does take two people to make an apology, and, and there are times, I'm sure we've all had, where you've maybe done something wrong and the other person doesn't want your apology. They, they don't want to hear from you again, or they, they don't want to talk about it anymore, or they don't want to apologize and hear the four steps about restitution and all that. They just want to, you know, leave me alone. Right. Well, if there's not an ongoing relationship, it might not be worth pushing at all right? Because it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter to the other person enough to have the conversation, that's okay. In my view, when you approach someone to make an apology, it's a request. It's a request for a conversation. It's not a demand. It's also, it's not a demand for forgiveness either. In a lot of cases, making an apology is very difficult. It's hard to do. So, what are the benefits of doing it? If you're going to have to go through all this work and discomfort, what's the point? What's the benefit of doing it? There are enormous benefits. You know, if something goes wrong in a relationship and the two of you can fix it, then you know more about each other 
and you feel closer to each other, and you have more confidence going forward that you can handle something else that comes up. You're stronger. You have something called relationship esteem, you know, like self-esteem, only about your relationship. You feel better about you as a couple that you can handle things. In medicine, an apology has a very powerful effect in that uh, patients and their families feel better, doctors feel better. There's the potential for less malpractice suit, fewer malpractice suits. What do you mean uh, in medicine? What do you, uh, give me an example. Like uh, for medical error, the old standard used to be that the medical system sort of closed ranks and never apologized. And they were afraid that there'd be more malpractice suits. But that's not the way it goes. If the harm done to someone that they love or themselves is recognized and spoken, they feel acknowledged as opposed to kind of shut out. And then they want um, a kind of healing rather than revenge. I always figure, too, if somebody, if somebody apologizes, it, it makes them less the enemy. That's the, the, Correct. That the, 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 the tension is, is relieved a little bit, that they, they're, trying to, they're trying to make amends or they're trying to see it from my point of view and be empathetic, that, that mm-hmm, somehow mm-hmm. The, 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 the conflict diminishes. I think that is profound, yes. The, the interesting thing to me about apologies is... If it does so much good, why is it so hard? Oh, that is a great question. That's the big question. One reason is that our brains are wired not to see our mistakes for all kinds of reasons. I mean, perceptually, we actually literally do not see them. We're subject to optical illusions of all sorts. And our own mistakes are things that we tend not to see. It's inefficient for our brains. The neuroscientists tell us our brains want to be efficient. And it's inefficient to notice a mistake and have to go back and correct it. Another reason is that our culture is set up to support a kind of confident, certain, moving forward, powerful, independent kind of person, which is kind of a male model, but not only. And those people are not really focused on connections with other people, much less harm to other people. It's not part of the story. It's a sign of weakness. It's considered a sign of weakness if you admit that you did something wrong or made a mistake or want to make up for something, right? You're supposed to be confident and on top of it and unflustered. To make a good apology requires, I think, courage But it also requires a certain kind of humble approach, you know, curiosity, openness. And that's not that dominant model that some of our leaders have. Another reason is the one we already talked about, which is that there are very few models. We don't see people doing it. We don't teach our children how to do it very well, right? When we're kids, we're taught, say, I'm sorry. And that's sort of like magic words, and it makes everything okay. But in fact... It doesn't really work. Teach kids to say things they don't mean. They don't know for sure what it even means. And so so how are we supposed to know how to make things right? How are we supposed to know how to heal harm, how to mend relationships when there's been a breach between people? Do you think the apology, when done well, is more for the recipient or the sender? That's a great question. I think it's sort of equal. I mean, it's obviously about the person who was hurt, 
right? And and you want to address their their hurt, their harm, whatever they need, right? You, that's that's the focus of the conversation. But the apologizer benefits so enorm- enormously too. It's just remarkable. Benefits in what way? Across the millennia, religious traditions around the world embody different ways for people to face and atone for what they do wrong. It's like a basic human universal need to address these things. And when you don't, you feel bad. What if you have done something that has hurt someone else and you feel the need to apologize, but there's no interest in hearing it on the other side? Yeah, yeah. There are times when it's not the thing to do particularly if they've asked you not to. Like, I don't, want to see, I don't want to hear from you again. Then you have to honor that. What about those cases? I can think of several times in my life where this has happened, and so I assume other people can too, where something has gone wrong. It happens with car accidents all the time, where, where blame is assigned, even though it doesn't really... It was an accident. It was just, you know, two, two cars in the same place at the same time. Yes, yeah, somebody was wrong, but they, 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 it wasn't like they deliberately tried to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I rem- when I was a kid, I remember this very distinctly, this playing with this little boy. I, I, I was on the other side of the yard, and he fell down and broke his collarbone, and I got blamed for I was nowhere near, and I had to apologize. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, what am I apologizing for? But, but things like that happen where an apology is going to go a long way to, to probably ease a lot of discomfort in people, but it's so disingenuous. Yeah, I kind of think if it's disingenuous, it's probably a bad idea. Well, little Billy's mom insisted, so and it was, yeah. and, it, and it made yeah. her feel better. So <laughs> right, so you're a kid, and you have to obey the grown-ups. Okay, <laughs> that's a little different than a real apology, but you know, maybe you care about little Billy and his his uh, collarbone, and so you you offer a condolence. I'm sorry. Maybe that's what the I'm sorry means. But in a car accident, you know, or even in a fight between two people, even if one person is kind of more at fault. Often both people have something that they have contributed, right? Often you can find something that you regret or that you wish you'd done differently, and you can see how it, how it landed badly on the other person, right? Even if you're not primarily at fault. And so what happens when you apologize and... You're not forgiven. You're, people are, somebody says, well, you're an idiot. So uh, I don't, you know, I mean, so you make the attempt, you try to apologize, you try to go through your four steps, and you get smacked in the face. Yeah, well, I think that's not so common, actually, but it could happen for sure. And if that's the end of the relationship, you got to chalk that one up to, you know, no more opportunities, right? But it's not usually how it goes. Usually, as you said in the beginning, the other person softens because you have softened. They're not your enemy anymore because you're not their enemy anymore. Sometimes it takes more than one try also. You know, serious harms in a relationship take, take quite a while to work out. The apology stretched out. That doesn't, doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Yeah, well, that's an interesting idea, because I think people, if they apologize or they attempt to apologize and they're turned away, 
well, I, I did what I could, and let, and mm-hmm. so that's the end of that. Yeah, so that's the end of that is exactly the thing I want to raise um, as a question. The most important take-home message from my book is when things have gone badly between you and someone else, even your first attempt to say, I'm sorry, if it's gone badly, that's not the end of the story. There are still chances and possibilities to make things right. And we often settle for that's the end of the story because we got hurt or we hurt somebody else or they're mad at us or whatever, you know, and that's not necessarily true. It does seem, or maybe this is how people rationalize not apologizing, is that in some cases to apologize is to stir it all up again, and maybe it's just better left alone. Yeah, well, that probably is true sometimes. I, I, I tend to think otherwise, though, that it's worth a try. You know, if you can bring peace to someone about something that happened a long time ago, you know, why not try? I think this has come up during the pandemic, that um, people have an opportunity to think about their old relationships more. They sort of rework old you know, breakups or partings of the way. And, you know, they they start thinking about, um, gosh, I wonder if there's something I could do to make that better. And And I think if you make an invitation to the other party, not a demand, an invitation, uh, is it okay with you if we talk about what, what went wrong? You know, or I'd like to, I'd like to understand more what happened for you. People can say no. So the big takeaway here is what? What's your, what is the big message that you want people to get? Well, there's a couple. One is that big one about it isn't the end of the story just because things have gone wrong between you and someone else. It might be possible to write a next chapter. You know, it might be possible to make things better and different. Um, and another thing is um, you probably don't know the whole story. Even if you're the one who, who's feeling hurt, you probably don't know everything about the other person's experience. You probably know part of the story. And in general, you know, you, you should speak as if you're right about things, but you should listen as if you're wrong. And that's the way you find out about the other one's point of view. Well, that's some interesting advice. Speak as if you're right about something, but listen as if you're wrong. Molly Howes has been my guest. She's a Harvard-trained clinical psychologist, and she is author of the book, A Good Apology, Four Steps to Make Things Right. And you will find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Molly. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure talking to you. If you have an alarm clock, no matter how old it is, the snooze button will likely give you nine more minutes of sleep. But why 9? Why not 10? Or why not make it programmable so you could set the snooze to any length? Well, on some modern digital devices, you can set the snooze, but most are set to 9 minutes, and it has to do with the history of the alarm clock. By the time the snooze feature was added in the 1950s, the inner workings of the alarm clocks had long been standardized. This meant that the teeth of the snooze gear had to mesh with the existing configuration, and that left engineers with a single choice. They could set the snooze for either about 9 minutes, or they could set it for about 10 minutes. 
but early reports indicated that 10 minutes was too long and would allow you to fall back into a deep sleep. So, clockmakers decided on 9 minutes instead of 10, believing people would wake up easier and happier after a shorter snooze. And today, even though the snooze on virtually any new clock could be set to any length, they're still mostly set to 9 minutes, because that's what consumers expect. And that is something you should know. We always need and really appreciate when you spread the word about this podcast by telling people you know to give it a listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.